At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about Edward Snowden. He published a memoir this week, and The Nation magazine features an excerpt this week. Editor D.D. Guttenplan will explain. Also, what's really going on while Trump creates chaos? Sasha Abramsky will separate what Trump is actually doing from what he's tweeting. But first... Some good news. The 2020 election will liberate us from Donald Trump and Republican hegemony. A sweeping Democratic victory will make it possible at last for us to address our most serious problems because 2020 will bring the death of the Republican Party as we've known it. That's what Stan Greenberg says. He's a longtime pollster and advisor to presidents from Clinton to Obama. He's also a best-selling author with a new book out. It has the wonderful title, R-I-P-G-O-P, How the New America is Dooming the Republicans. Stan Greenberg, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Well, everybody agrees that the political divide in America is deeper today than ever before. The middle ground has disappeared. You talk about what you call the new America, younger people, women, especially single women, people of color secular, urban, college-educated people. That's the new America. And then there's the Republican Party. Who exactly did they mobilize? The key to to Trump, you know, winning was the fact that he built his base with the Tea Party um, inside the Republican Party. That's how he, you know, that's how he got the nomination. He built an alliance with evangelicals, and that gave him about half the party to look at the primary, about half the voters were with him, but it was it was a party divided and genuinely split, you know, with the rest of the party, with McCain, you know, McCain, secular conservatives uh, and moderates who were socially liberal. He you know, he won the, the Tea Party base because he he hated the the, uh, the changes we're talking about more than anyone else. He showed how much he hated Obama. He was a birther. And he battled. He battled against the new America. He showed. He showed he qualified, you know, to you know to leave this uh, leave this party, but it meant throwing himself off a, off a cliff, running in the most extreme possible way, against government, against immigration, ultimately, um, as a, as a social conservative. But he was leading a smaller and smaller party, and so if you look right now, he's driven out the the social conservative the Secular conservatives, the moderates, in like we had a 10 point shift since 2018 as he's driven those voters out. But he now has a 70% base. He had half before, but now the party has defined his base as 70% of the party. He's become more and more extreme, more and more anti government, more and more anti immigration. Um, and as a result, producing trends that uh, make the Democratic win even more likely. 
I want to go back just for a minute to 2016 and Hillary's unexpected loss, which I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about. We all have. I think probably your most important chapter in your book, R.I.P.G.O.P., is about why Hillary lost. The 2016 election should not have been close. Why did she lose? How could the Democrats lose Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin? A tragedy, obviously. Uh, what I do write about in the uh, how much, you know, they didn't campaign there, they didn't respect working people there. Because at the heart of losing these uh, voters is what's happening with working people. Uh, and if you look at the recommendations I'm making here, they, they very much center on not just having a politics that, you know, builds build with, you know, understanding them and, and uh, building forward. But the, this was a campaign that declined to make working people or the economy uh, center stage. She, uh, in in her book, she says Stan was critical that that I didn't, you know, wasn't tough enough on the economy. And I talked to the economy all the time, she said. I was definitely wrong in that. The economy was like central to what I was talking about. Well, the problem wasn't she wasn't talking about it. It was what she was saying. Um, she said, like, President Obama build on the build on the progress. They saw an economy that was uh, that was moving in the right direction. Jobs have been created, in, you know, incomes up, poverty coming down. That's you know, that's just she closed her election. Now we, you know, I had no idea that she, you know, would close the campaign with this idea that we were this was a, we were building on success. We were got rid of the whole idea that we were changed. We were totally the status quo. And you know, she ran on, on continuity. Uh, and that, uh, but what we find is that President Obama, almost everybody living in the uh, metropolitan areas, missed what was happening over that decade. Not you, obviously, not us. Uh, but since the financial crisis, loss of wealth, loss of income, created a country where, where the leaders continually just misjudge uh, what's happening in the country, including President Trump, you know, who will be defeated again on. You know, talking up how good the economy is and how good wages are. No, they're big structural changes um, that demand change. You have some unforgettable data in your book, uh, R.I.P. G.O.P. The one that struck me was uh, on this issue of understanding working class people. How many unmarried women cannot pay for an emergency that would cost $500? You say it's a majority, a majority of unmarried women cannot pay $500 if an emergency came up. That's right. I, I actually put that graph you know, right up front in that chapter, but I also put it right up front after they lost um, in, the, in the poll I did right after the election when I would say, build on the progress. What are you talking about? <laughs> the people who are the most vulnerable, but keep in mind, a quarter of the electorate is not a small section. We're talking about unmarried women, you know, who can't who can't afford a five hundred dollars, and that's why they were responsive to the leaders who were who understood you know, who understood that despair. So the new America reemerged in twenty eighteen in the midterm elections, with you know voters mobilized by outrage about Trump you think that mobilization will continue in November 2020 but aren't midterm elections usually quite different from presidential elections you know life has been changed by 
uh, by President Trump. You know, just as I got up every day to write, uh, write this book, people got involved all across, you know, across the uh, the country and organizations, the resistance. Indeed, I dedicate the book to the resistance and, you know, and to the women's of art, uh, you know, where this started. And that's actually what's so different and why the rising American electorate and the inevitability of the demographics is a different, different phenomenon that we're a different country. That is, people are organizing, they're active, they're becoming conscious. And that's what, you know, what happened is that Trump's, uh, Trump's election produced a new consciousness, engagement. You have some other very important data about current public opinion on two crucial political questions. Should the government be more active in addressing our problems and immigration benefits the country agree or disagree? These are, of course, Trump's two central themes. What's the evidence on what Americans think about this right now? On whether government should be uh, more involved or whether uh, we should depend on individuals and business, we've seen the surge of people wanting the government to be active. Uh, to do uh, to do more, you know, over 60 percent, the opposite of what is happening. So as people watch this attempt to suffocate government, which is what the Tea Party Republican Party has done, the, the public is saying, no, we want more activist government. And the other is immigration. Uh, when Trump was elected, half the country said uh, immigration benefits the country. That's now jumped to 65 percent. And we're tracking new polling. It's showing and increasing every day. Believe that immigration benefits the country. This, this is a real pushback to the administration because they are becoming more and more virulent in how they're dealing with immigration. Countries becoming more pro-immigration in, uh, in response. But the other is them being engaged. The off-year election in 2018 was the highest turnout in the history of off-year elections. We have a measure on a one to ten scale how closely you're following politics, 10 being you're following it extremely, you know, extremely closely. 10 on that scale in 2018 in November hit the highest point that we had reached. This was the highest turnout election. It matched the presidential number we had in 16, which had been the highest. But after the election, in every election, in any poll I've ever done, we, that number goes down. People pull back and then come back month after month, and then it goes up again at the very end. Well, that number has gone up 10 points since the 18 election. Wow. There's been a 10-point increase in engagement since the 18 election. So people become, have a more engaged, more consolidated behind the Democrats, more pro-immigration every day, more pro-government. Every day they watch. So it's not inevitability. It's a it's an, it's mobilization, engagement, public consciousness of, of their values. The engagement of politics is producing a new uh, a new electoral map because it keeps accelerating against the Republican Party. That becomes even more extreme and more marginalized. Uh, it makes it hard for the Republican Party to come off it uh, in a way to, to rebuild the party. Okay, so we have increasing mobilization. We have the inevitability of the demographic forces that are benefiting the Democratic Party. But we also have divisions in the Democratic Party. 
You know all about the divisions in the Democratic Party. Tell us about what the big ones are right now. Oh, I think partly the elites aren't reading uh, the, the country and aren't reading the Democrats right. Every time there's a debate, you know, you have, you know, the fraught commentary on, oh, my God, we're driving away moderate over, uh, voters. You know, we're running for, you know, the, uh, the base and therefore we're going to lose independence. But that's missing what happened after this uh, uh, 2018. It's also, but it's also missing the fact that Democrats have become more, you know, more determined that government play a large role, but so have all voters. And there's now a huge amount of support for government playing a you know, bigger role, dealing with the environment, dealing with climate, climate change, dealing with inequality, dealing with health care, even within, within the health care debate you know, on the debate stage. Everybody, indeed including Biden, was not talking about minor changes in the Affordable Care Act. He wasn't even quite conscious of how much change he was proposing. Everybody on that on that stage was talking about dramatically more, a dramatically larger government role in uh, in healthcare, which is now just taken for granted, and I believe politically uh, effective and helpful. And do you argue not just that Trump will lose in 2020, but that he will bring about? You're quite clear about this: the death of the Republican Party as we know it right now. So politics in Washington starting in 2021 will look more like California, where the Democrats have majorities in in both branches of Congress and in the executive. But aren't there a lot of places in America where the Republicans will win no matter what? The red states? Yes. I mean, you can't look, you can't change the Constitution and that they can be a successful party, you know, you know, in those states. But losing control, you know, nationally, has a has a huge uh, cost for their coalition, uh, and we'll see how long they're willing to be out of power, you know, na- uh, nationally. They are fighting the social modernization, you know, of the country. They're fighting sexual revolution in their current budget <laughs> of the federal government. They are trying to get rid of sex education. Their battle, uh, you know, against the Affordable Care Act. The suit to the Supreme Court was on contraception. You can't stop stop the growing diversity, the growing multiculturalism, uh, and all of that moving forward at, at great bank speed. They are fighting it, fighting back. They're producing a party which is concentrated only in the most socially conservative and anti-government, anti-immigrant part of the uh, part of the electorate, um, and they can't survive nationally as a party. They're only going to get smaller. This, you know, this, this, this embankment within the Republican Party only gets a smaller and smaller piece as they go off the cliff and get defeated in this election. We need an economy that works for everyone, not just the rich and well-connected. That should be the message in 2020, says Stan Greenberg, longtime Democratic pollster and strategist. His indispensable new book is R.I.P. G.O.P., How the New America is Dooming the Republicans. Stan, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you, and I really do think this is a transformative moment. Edward Snowden published a memoir this week. It's called Permanent Record, and The Nation just published an excerpt. It's titled Love at First Bite, B-Y-T-E. For comment, we turn to The Nation's editor, D.D. Guttenplan. 
Don, welcome back. Great to be back, John. Well, Edward Snowden opens his memoir, I Used to Work for the Government, Now I Work for the Public. That change, he says, quote, got me into a bit of trouble at the office. The book was published this week on Tuesday simultaneously in more than 20 countries, and the nation excerpt appears pretty much simultaneously. The book's existence was a secret until it was announced on August 1st by Macmillan and Metropolitan Books and Snowden himself, who tweeted that day, I just completed an international conspiracy across 20 countries, and somehow the secret never leaked, close quote. When and how did you find out about the book? Was it before that tweet on August 1st? It was probably the day before that tweet on August 1st. So when I... um this is a, a perhaps curious detail, but it happens to be the truth. When I came to New York to take over as editor of The Nation, I didn't have a place to live. So I stayed with an old friend of mine uh, who had been my boss a long time ago at Pantheon Books, Sarah Burstell, ah. who's now the editor-in-chief of Metropolitan Books. And uh, she was being very mysterious, but I was too jet-lagged to notice until eventually she let me in on the secret. Well, until now, Snowden has always said, I am not the story. What the government was doing was the story. But, but now he's written 432 pages about himself, several of which are in The Nation magazine this week. I should say that I think it's a really interesting, excellent book. What is in the book is who he actually is, which turns out to be someone very different from the picture painted in the mainstream media and in all the media around the time that he made his revelations back in 2013. What's not in the Nation excerpt but is in the book and which came as a kind of a revelation to me and which I allude to in my editor's note in the Nation is that, you know, people, uh, particularly his critics, have tried to paint Snowden as some kind of un-American and what really emerges in the book is how deeply American he is and how deep his roots go. You know, I.F. Stone used to say that he always felt a little uneasy singing that line about land of the pilgrim's pride, land where my fathers died, because his ancestors had only just come over from Russia, as, as my ancestors had only just come over from uh, Austro-Hungary. But Snowden's ancestors came on the Mayflower. In fact, you know, the the poem, The Courtship of Miles Standish, which was a Longfellow poem that people of my parents' generation used to have to recite in schools. Well, John Alden, who's the man in the poem, advised to speak for yourself, John, uh, by Priscilla Mullins, the, the woman he's courting on behalf of his friend Miles Standish, but whom he's fallen in love with. Those two are Edward Snowden's ancestors. He's a direct descendant. Uh, and he also says in the book that that's on his mother's side. On his father's side, the Snowdens came in the 17th century. They, his, one of his ancestors, Richard Snowden, was there to greet William Penn when he landed at Penn's Landing. And that the family used to, they had a grant from King Charles II for all of these acres of what became Anne Arundel County, which today includes the headquarters of the National Security Agency. So, you know, the idea... Um, that this person was someone who would act impulsively or lightly and who didn't have a deep sense that not just of American history, but of his own role in American history is completely dispelled by this book. And I suppose that to me was the, the first big revelation.
Well, let's talk about the Nation excerpt from Snowden's book, Permanent Record. It's called Love at First Bite. And I think it's my favorite part of the book. In some ways, it's also the most significant and and memorable. It's about his youthful enthusiasm for home computers. Tell us about this period that in the nation he calls one brief and beautiful stretch of time that coincided almost exactly with my adolescence. The section we printed is a section about a young boy, as he was then, falling in love with computers and then falling in love with the Internet and discovering this kind of wide-open, completely free atmosphere where you could pretend to be anything you want. You know, there's the famous cartoon, Nobody Knows You're a Dog on the Internet. Well, nobody knows you're a 12-year-old boy either. And (laughs) Snowden was learning as fast as he could and, you know, given his particular gifts, that was incredibly fast, how to build computers, how to program computers, how to understand computer language, how not just to play games, but to hack them. And he would he would send queries out in the early days of the Internet or to people who would be professors of computer science, for example. And he'd ask them, you know, how do I fit this processor or what do I do in this next step? I'm, I'm stumped trying to build this thing. And he would get back incredibly helpful step-by-step advice from people who had no idea they were corresponding with a 12-year-old boy. There's a remarkable quote here. To this day, Snowden writes, I consider the 1990s online to have been the most pleasant and successful anarchy I've ever experienced. What did you think about that? I thought that's a really significant remark for lots of reasons. One is because... Snowden, this person who's now become, you know, subversive number one, was someone who signed up to join the army after 9-11, who in his online adolescence going through shedding his chameleon skin persona after persona was basically a kind of a right-wing libertarian, making lots of arguments in favor of guns, trying to say things to provoke people. And one of the points he makes is that, uh, that because there was no permanent record, because nobody knew who you were, because people spoke through personas and aliases that were everybody acknowledged that they were doing this, uh, and there was no effort, the government and corporations had not yet forced people to link their online personalities to their real-world identities, he could take outrageous positions but then abandon, him, abandon them when he grew out of them. Part of what he's talking about is his own arc of development from being a kind of right-wing libertarian who wasn't really concerned about power at all, and certainly not concerned about the government's power, uh, to someone who was woken up through his own experiences and became incredibly concerned about that. And part of the reason he's concerned about it is because he he saw the end of that freedom that had meant so much to him. He saw the end of the freedom to make mistakes online and to not be held accountable for them, to be able to just grow out of them. And he also writes of his youth, this is one position I think he still maintains today, I fully supported defensive and targeted surveillance. He's implying a sharp distinction here. What's the other kind of surveillance that he's against? The kind he's against is what he calls bulk collection. And that's the kind that he revealed. Again, to me, that was the other, the second most powerful revelation of the book. I mean, I had followed the Snowden's revelations 
pretty closely when they were published by The Guardian. Uh, I was living in England at the time, and it was front-page news every day. But I have to say that until I read Permanent Record, I really had no idea how bad it is, because that's the point. I mean, he has a whole chapter describing this program, X Keystroke, which essentially allows the government to capture in real time everything you're doing at your terminal, everything that's being done within view of your terminal's microphone or, or camera, and then it, it archives it all so it can, it can be examined later. And as Snowden points out, it's not just, you know, the sort of embarrassing, you know, softcore porn searches or medical searches that constitute a lot of what people want to do in private on the Internet. It's everything you've ever done, everything you've ever looked up, everyone you've ever emailed, uh, every old, you know, connection you've ever tried to search for. And his point is that they now have all of that. They have vast data capabilities for mining it. And if they want to lean on you, and if you are a Supreme Court justice, a senator, a president, a presidential candidate, the, your entire private life is stored and offered for leverage to those in power. And that's a terrifying prospect. The book also gives us a lot of insight, or at least a lot of information, about Snowden's life today as a resident of Moscow, he's still charged as the Obama administration charged him with violating the Espionage Act, giving secrets to the enemy, which is kind of a strange charge since the people who received the information he revealed were the people of the United States. They're not supposed to be the enemy. (laughs) Well, (laughs) there are a lot of absurdities here. I mean, just just before um, we began this interview, John, I got a, a press release from the ACLU because the Justice Department today sued Snowden and his publishers over permanent record because he didn't submit it for pre-publication oh. review to the NSA. Uh, <laughs> and the nation is also guilty of this, I believe. Well, we're, we're guilty. We haven't been sued yet, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad to know the ACLU is already on the case. I mean, it's, it's important. It, you know, we make light of it, but this is a big deal. I will say that it's important to note, and Snowden notes, that the Obama administration, you know, went after him incredibly hard. And unlike Chelsea Manning, who was eventually pardoned, you know, there were, there were no talks. There were no, there were no negotiations. There was no discussion about the fact that he performed this incredible public service of you know, revealing what this rogue intelligence agency, the NSA, had done to us against the law, against the Constitution, and is still doing it. When it was revealed that the NSA during the Bush administration was conducting warrantless wiretapping on American citizens, which is completely against the law, what they did was they changed the law to make it legal. Obama never stopped this. He never acknowledged that Snowden had performed an enormous public service. They, they let Chelsea Manning rot in prison for years. So I think it's important to note that although Snowden can be perhaps difficult to deal with, I mean, I, we found the process of, of obtaining these excerpts difficult. I gather that the process of producing the book in secret was incredibly difficult. They, they, it was only written and edited on air-gap computers, i.e. machines that were never connected to the Internet. 
Um, so that meant that things couldn't be just emailed. They had to be you know, carried by thumb drive or some other mechanism. I don't, I, I, I'm not privy to the exact details, but nothing was sent over the Internet. There were no electronic copies. When we started excerpting the book, we were not given an electronic copy. We were given hard copy, which we had to scan and then you know, transform into editable copy so that we could edit it electronically. You, you begin to think this is ridiculous, but then you remember that they're really after this guy, and that if they catch him, they'll put him in prison for the rest of his life at best. You know, under the Trump administration, you have to say that would be the best case outcome. Trump himself and also Secretary of State Mike Pompeo have both said execution would be the proper way to deal with Edward Snowden. So you're absolutely right. He may have a comfortable life in Moscow right now, but we can't be sure that that's going to last forever. Closing thoughts. Closing thoughts. Well, I think if I'm a Democratic president, I should pardon Snowden fairly early uh, and, and be grateful for what he's revealed. I think uh, if, if Trump gets four more years, then Snowden's going to be toughing it out in Moscow for four more years. And I suppose hoping that the Russians continue to believe that the propaganda value of having him uh, is worth whatever irritation they think it causes you know, their friends in the White House. Edward Snowden's memoir published this week is called Permanent Record. The excerpt published in The Nation magazine is called Love at First Bite, B-Y-T-E. Don Guttenplan, thanks for publishing this and thanks for talking with us today. It's a pleasure, John. Thank you. Trump's tweets and speeches are irresistible newsmakers. How many days were the headlines filled with news about his map of Hurricane Doria headed for Alabama? But it's too easy to get distracted by what Trump says in tweets. It's what he does that's important. Distinguishing between them is the focus of a new column in The Nation. It has the wonderful title, Signal Noise, and it's written by Sasha Abramsky. He's the author of several books, including Inside Obama's Brain, The American Way of Poverty, and most recently, Jumping at Shadows, The Triumph of Fear and the End of the American Dream. Sasha, welcome back. Thank you, John. The major news organizations often do cover what Trump is actually doing, and yet, and yet what? And yet it gets lost in the noise. So, yes, when a major environmental regulation is rolled back or when yet another ghastly anti-immigrant measure is pushed forward, the Washington Post, the New York Times, CNN, pretty much all the big news organizations, maybe with the exception of Fox News, they do cover it. But then what happens is later that afternoon, Trump picks a fight with somebody on Twitter or he gratuitously insults an ally or says something needlessly provocative at a rally. And the media sort of stampedes in that direction because it's kind of compelling and in a sick sort of train wreck sort of way, it's sort of fun to watch. And so what happens is the really significant stuff gets buried amidst all the noise. And so the point of this new column is to say, let's, let's actually focus on what matters. Does it matter or will it matter five or 10 years from now that Trump insulted this particular person in this particular tweet? Or will it matter more that this environmental regulation is being rolled back and we're going to have a whole bunch more pollution as a consequence? So 
let's take uh, a recent example. Trump at that Republican event in Baltimore complained that energy-efficient light bulbs made him look orange. My response was, doesn't he look orange anyway? But you suggest that's not really what we should be focusing on this week. Yeah, I mean, look, when Trump says things that ridiculous, the temptation is to spend an awful lot of emotional and mental energy responding. So we get into this whole back and forth, you know, how absurd it is. Of course, the light bulbs don't make you look orange. You look orange for all kinds of other reasons. Or he says that windmills cause cancer. And we get into this whole, you know, brouhaha, do they really cause cancer? Well, the answer is, of course, they don't. There's no there's no scientific evidence behind what he says. But he's not saying it in order to increase our understanding of anything. He's saying it to distract us. So he puts all this stuff out there. We follow him, we get distracted by it. And meanwhile, the same week that he's talking about the orange color of his skin, they're opening up the Arctic wildlife refuge to oil drilling. They're opening up the Tongass rainforest in Alaska to logging. They've just announced in the last few days that they're going to roll back California's anti-pollution waivers, which date all the way back to 1970. So in this week where we're distracted about the orangeness of Trump's skin color, some of the most appalling attacks on environmental regulations are underway. And these are attacks that are going to have consequences, not just in America and not just for a few years, but globally and for decades, because they're going to result in a whole bunch more carbon dioxide going up into the atmosphere. They're going to make it that much more difficult to control global warming. They're going to channel that much more profit to the oil industry and to other extractive industries. And these things matter. These things matter politically. They matter morally. They matter for what kind of a society and a community we are. And yet, because there is so much going on simultaneously, it's increasingly difficult to stay focused on the big picture. Well, Trump is obviously a master of getting himself into the headlines and into our heads pretty much every day of the week. Some people say this talent for distraction is a brilliant strategic move, that it's a self-conscious effort to take our eyes away from what's really important that he's been doing behind the scenes. Others say it's not part of a strategic plan. It's just his narcissism and egomania on display. So do you think we should give him credit for political genius or, or not? <laughs> I'm going to say yes to both, to everything. <laughs> uh, I think there's part of us, you know, partly there is a feral instinct at work that he has in a sort of very gutter kind of way, good political in instincts about how to seize the um, political conversation, how to, how to dictate what we're talking about at any moment. But I think part of it also is the sort of mindless narcissism. And this is a reality TV presidency. It's a presidency that's all about the headlines. It's all about whether or not he and his colleagues appear a lot on TV and in social media. And the consequences be damned. And so, you know, I think with the environment, for example, you know, partly there is this strategy in play to distract us while some really, really bad policies go in. And partly... This is just who Trump is. Trump really, you know, may well believe he's a conspiracy theorist. He may well believe that windmills cause cancer. He may well believe that light bulb designers have made light bulbs deliberately to make him look bad on the TV cameras. Um, you know, but but at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. You know, we, we we're going to spend years and years and years 
dealing with the fallout from the Trump presidency. And the least of the fallout we're going to have to deal with is the sort of dumbing down through the tweets. The much more significant fallout is the fact that regulatory structures are being dismantled and the fact that who we are as a country is being utterly reimagined through these concentration camps on the border. Let's talk about your column, your new column, Signal Noise, and how you're doing this right now. It's it's a it's a big job to find out what's really going on in the government of the United States. It's hard work for an, an entire team of reporters. You are energetic and really good at this, but you're only one person. So how how are you doing this? I mean, I mean, this this is a crowdsourced effort. So you know, partly I read a lot. I read lots of different news sources. Partly I have a lot of sources in the world of immigration law you know, people in the environmental movement, people in immigrant rights organizations, labor rights groups, and so on, who are sending emails and tweets and direct messages my way and saying, hey, you know, heads up, this this stuff's going down. But to be absolutely honest, you know, this column only works as a crowdsourced effort. So if you're listening to this interview and you're interested in the column, follow me on Twitter. They, my handle is Abramsky Sasha, and send me a note if you think there's something interesting that should be paid attention to, let me know about it. And let's talk about right now, this week, if we try to turn away from the noise and find out what the signal is coming out of the Trump White House right now, what should we be paying attention to this week? The signal this week, the by far the biggest domestic story, is what's being done to California's emission standards. And this is going to result in one almighty legal fight. And Trump administration's betting that they can get it up to the Supreme Court before the 2020 election and that the Supreme Court will rule in their favor. And the consequences, if that happens, will last for generations because for 50 years, California has had this ability to basically push a large part of the country to adopt better fuel efficiency standards and better pollution standards. And if Trump's tactics on this work, we all become grubbier. We all become dirtier. And I don't mean metaphorically. I mean, literally, we all are more vulnerable to living in smoggy cities. We're all more vulnerable to living in areas where we're more likely to get asthma. And all of this stuff has health consequences. It has environmental consequences. This should be a story that everybody in the country has a stake in. But we only have a stake in it if we're paying attention, if we know what's important, if we work out here's the, here's the signal and filter out all the noise. And what other areas do you think you'll be covering over the next weeks and months? Well, unfortunately, there's no shortage of vast changes that are kicking in. Um, I can give you a few examples. Since the Voting Rights Act was diluted over the last few years by Supreme Court ruling, nearly 1,700 polling places in poor neighborhoods have shut down. That's obviously going to have a huge impact as we get into election season. Higher education. You know, there were all these moves afoot to make it easier for loan forgiveness for ex-students who go into public service jobs. All of that's being rolled back by Betsy DeVos's Department of Education. The Clean Water Act is under attack. Um, the Trump administration is siding with the states that are trying to have the entire Affordable Care Act declared unconstitutional by the court. And all of this stuff is the signal. And all of this stuff, you can bet your bottom dollar, will get blotted out by the noise, by the tweets, by the insults, by the soap opera spectacle of it all. 
Sasha Abramsky's new column twice a week is called Signal Noise. Read it at thenation.com. And you can subscribe to the Abramsky Report, a weekly subscription-based political column. You can find it online at theabramskyreport.com. Sasha, thanks for taking this up, and thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure. Thanks again, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of the nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of the nation. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com. And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.